Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the privilege it is to be able to gather week in and week out. We take it for granted. We take it for granted in one way or another probably every week, but it is only by your grace that we are even desiring to be here. The the fact that you've called us and saved us and made us a people that want to worship you and made us a people that want to know you. Lord, we we do desire those things, and we just ask that individually you would shape and mold each of us to be more and more true to your word and informed by what you've revealed to us as we seek to live a life that honors you and to live a life of worship for you. We also seek that in our corporate context as we're together and joining in song and stirring one another up in individual conversations. We just ask that you would help us to be more and more honoring you in everything that we do and say. Lord, as we spend time in your word this morning as a group, I just ask that you would, first of all, give me clarity of thought as I seek to clearly articulate all that your word has to say on these matters and help us to be more and more aware of what your word has revealed about who you are, specifically the person of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our lives and his ministry in the world. We thank you because as we've studied over these weeks, we know we cannot live this life in any way that honors you apart from his ministry. So please be with us today as we study the fruit of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives and producing those. And also as we understand the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we ask for that even now as we study your word. And help us to be wise and discerning as we think about spiritual gifts and help us to be vigorous in using our gifts, and also aware on what your word teaches regarding the cessation of some of those gifts. So we lift up this time to you, Lord. I ask that you'd be moving in each of our hearts. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start by just reading our statement of faith. Um, We're going to reference a few of those verses. Really, we've spent the last couple weeks looking at the first half. I mean, we've not referenced it every week, but we've been digging into the verses pertaining to those different things. And the second paragraph is more of what we'll touch on today. So we believe at Calvary Bible Church that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. Most of this, as we read this, will not be news to probably any of you. He is God, equal in nature with God the Father and God the Son. He was active in creation. He restrains sin and Satan in the world. He convicts unsaved men of sin, of the righteousness of Christ, and of the future judgment of sin as the gospel is proclaimed. And he makes all who trust in Jesus to become new creations and baptizes them into the body of Christ. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit indwells, seals, guides, teaches, assures, intercedes for, and helps the believer. The Holy Spirit's ministry in this age is to glorify Christ in and through the believer. And the means by which he does this is by reproducing the character of Jesus Christ in the believer's life. We'll look at that a little bit today as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. We believe that today the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to each believer and that he gives gifted men to the church, evangelists and pastor teachers. These, together with the word of God, are sufficient to bring believers to maturity. We believe that the miraculous sign gifts, such as speaking in tongues and instantaneous healing, which God used in order to confirm his message and messengers, were temporary in nature 
and gradually ceased as the New Testament was completed and as its authority became established. Because these sign gifts have ceased for the church age, any practice that claims to be a manifestation of miraculous sign gifts is false and is not to be exercised. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act of God that places all true believers in this age into the body of Christ, the church. This baptism occurs the instant a person believes in Christ. We believe that God does hear and answer prayer regarding those who are sick in accordance with his will. And then just a note, this paragraph is not intended to express any limits on God's ability to perform miracles according to his will. So that's a brief summary. That's just hitting a lot of points and hitting them with one sentence on what we believe and and the conclusion that the elders have come to and and shepherded the congregation towards over the years. But I want to dig into, as you know, if you've been here the last few weeks, a lot of these things we've already looked at. So we're not going to be digging back into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be digging back into his work related to our salvation. But a couple of these key points that we're going to look into today pertain to his fruit that he produces in our lives, reproducing Christ's character in our lives. We'll look at illumination, a very important doctrine as we think about our relationship to Scripture and how we can know what God has revealed. We, we often think of the Holy Spirit's work of inspiration, of initially providing us with the Scriptures through inspiring the authors, but there's also an aspect in which as we, readers in the 21st century, receive the gift of illumination as we study Scripture, and then we'll also look at the gifts of the Spirit. So with that, please turn with me to Galatians 5, and we'll be looking at the fruit of the Spirit. You'll notice on your handout today, there shouldn't be any fill-in-the-blanks. That's intentional, so that this handout can be a resource. Whether or not you're paying close attention this morning, you'll be able to look back on this handout, hopefully, and it may address questions that you have in the future. But I greatly encourage you to be filling in notes in the margins. We may be cross-referencing other scriptures. Um, So use this as a, a notes sheet. Mark it up. Galatians 5, and we'll read 16 through 26 because it gives the context. Usually we, we read just the, the part about the, the fruit of the Spirit, probably one that we're all familiar with. We want to look at the context there. So Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, in contrast to the works of the flesh that we just read about, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong in Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. How many of you are familiar with the fruit of the Spirit? 
How many of you think you could probably have recited them without even reading, reading the verse? I'm guessing half. I want to see hands higher. Okay, yeah. So we're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and if you're not, we just read it. So those are the verses that you turn to. It's a, it's a go-to series for a multi-week topical series for good reason. All of these characteristics that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives are, are vital for our living a life that honors the Lord. And I, I don't really want to recover ground that you've likely covered before as we look at this, but I want to first just highlight that the context as we look at the Spirit's produce is that walking by the Spirit is the antidote to fleshly desires. Walking by the Spirit is the antidote to fleshly desires. It's the, it's the only means by which we will be able to not go down the road that is described in 19 through 21. Often in our labors against indwelling sin, we have a temptation to focus so much on, I need to stop doing that, I need to stop doing that, I need to stop doing that, that you become so fixated on the thing that you need to stop doing that that's all you're thinking about. Rather, the biblical model here and elsewhere is put off, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on. Put off and put on. Put off and put on. So as we see a list of things like this and other places in scriptures that we need to put off, we can't just stop with, I'm going to stop doing all of those things. Stop living that way. Stop thinking that way. But what am I going to put on in its place? And in this case, we see that it's the Holy Spirit himself that will produce those characteristics that we need to put on and certainly need to be actively seeking to cultivate those characteristics in our lives as well. So the first thing we see is that walking by the Spirit is an antidote to fleshly desires. And then we see the, the Spirit's produce. We, we often think of the fruit of the Spirit, and maybe we're thinking of like a specific type of fruit, but it's not talking necessarily about fruit as distinct from a vegetable in the way that we think of the word fruit, but just the, the produce, what comes from, the results of, you could say. It's kind of the concept there. So what is the results of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives? It's not just picturing an apple tree and observing the apple that's on the, that tree, but just the various multifaceted, different, almost species of fruit that come from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And I want to highlight two. The first one and the last one. Fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first fruit that is identified by Paul in Galatians. That's going to be really important as we look at the First Corinthians passage later. The first thing the Spirit produces in the believer's life is love. But I also want to highlight the last one and that is self-control. We did a study on self-control back in August. It was a tremendously fruitful study for me personally. I greatly enjoyed surveying the way that self-control is talked about in Scripture. And one thing that I found really remarkable and has been impactful for me ever since this is realizing that one of the, the evidences of being filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit is self-control which seems like a contradiction. You're like, if, okay, if, if a fruit of the Spirit, shouldn't that be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and spirit control? Like, I, I feel like there's, there should be a difference here. But realizing that one of the things that the Spirit produces in the believer is the ability to actually be free to actually have control and do what honors the Lord. We're, we're free to be holy, as one person puts it. No longer are we enslaved to sin, not having control of our 
desire is not having control of our actions, but one of the fruit of the Spirit is that we actually do have control. That's a, a gift that the Spirit gives to the believer. So it's no longer a matter of, I'm out of control, I don't know what's happening to me. And this is probably a self-evident critique for those of you um, that are aware of some of the claims of those that may say, oh, I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just so full of the Spirit and I, I, I just lost all control. What? <laughs> the, this passage says that's not the, uh, the way that the Spirit works. The Spirit works um, in a way that actually the believer has self-control, control of himself. So any questions on these this passage, the fruit of the Spirit, other ones other than the, the first and the last? Yes? When you say self-control, is it by the Spirit, like, is the Spirit the one self-controlling us, or does the Spirit give us the gift of personal self-control? I think it would be more so the latter, thinking of it in a similar category of all these, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. There's a sense in which all of those are being produced by the Spirit, but there's a sense in which all of those are being expressed volitionally in our lives. It's not, it's not contrary to our will that like, even though I want to do this, the Holy Spirit's just going to barge in and make me gentle. Um, it's actually conforming us and producing Christ's character in us. So does that clarify a little bit? Yeah, so it's not like, yeah. No. Any other questions on that? That was a really good question. A great passage to return to with regularity and also I would encourage you all to consider after this morning looking through that list and seeing what's, what's one of these that I may be actually actively suppressing in a sense. I might be working against the Spirit as He's seeking to produce these things in my life. So reflect on that list and potentially prioritize one to make that your prayer. Lord, produce this in me more and more. The best prayers we can pray are the ones that we know are God's will. And this is one that we know is God's will, that these things would be produced in our lives more and more. So the second thing we'll look at is illumination by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians is a loaded book. A lot of correctives that Paul is making for a church that had some things very, very wrong. Some encouragements, but a lot of correctives. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, and I was originally thinking just 10 through 16, but we'll start in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Note that word mature, we will be returning to that word throughout this study. Mature. Yet among the mature, we do, not, or we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And then picking up in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So lowercase s. Who, who knows the, the, 
thoughts of a person except for the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, capital S, Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this, not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, imparting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then critical verse in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Tremendously helpful passage when we think about how is it that we can understand profound spiritual realities that God has revealed, in this case to the Apostle Paul that he relayed to the people in Corinth. How is it that a a person could ever understand these realities? How is it that someone could know God's thoughts through his revelation, through what he's shown us, and also through that internal work that the spirit of that person does, the spirit of God? So illumination, concisely defined, illumination, maybe a word you're familiar with, maybe not, is the work that the Holy Spirit does on the mind of the regenerate believer, the born-again believer, whereby we are able to receive, to understand, and also to respond to God's word appropriately. Any of those three things, a proper receiving, a proper understanding, and a proper response to God's word, apart from God's spirit, is impossible. The natural man, verse 14, does not accept the Spirit of God. The default that we're all born into is not to embrace these realities that the Lord communicates. So a couple notes, and I just included this slightly tweaked um, wording from a, a systematic theology textbook. What does the illuminating work of the Spirit provide? Letter B in your handout. The illuminating, spirit, illuminating work of the Spirit provides receptivity to the authority of God's Word, conviction that it is the truthful Word of God, and captivity or capacity aided by the Holy Spirit to discern the true meaning of the Word of God. All three of those essential if we're to truly grow in our understanding of what God's revealed for us. Because if we don't have this, we're not going to be able to receive, we're not going to have conviction that those things are true, and we're not going to be aided in understanding and discerning the true meaning of the Word of God. But there's also some limitations to illumination, important limitations to consider, because if we don't take these into account, we just think illumination means I can just somehow have deeper knowledge apart from God's Word, you can go all sorts of places with that sort of understanding of illumination. So a number of passages, we won't turn to them all, but a number of passages that help kind of counterbalance our understanding of illumination. So what are the limitations of illumination? Illumination does not function outside of God's Word. It's not something where you just close your Bibles, close your eyes, and just wait to hear God's voice. Illumination doesn't function outside of God's Word. That would be called direct revelation, if something's being given to you directly, which is said to cease. We'll talk on that in a little while. And in the end of the book of Revelation, quite clear it will cease. 
Illumination also, secondly, does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally because the human element can cause false doctrine. There's never going to be this situation this side of eternity where all of us think the exact same way on every single issue because there's always going to remain in some of us something fleshly, something sinful, something human that will be not properly receiving uh, and not properly understanding God's word. So there's always going to be that human element, which means there's not going to be this perfect lockstep uh, connection with other other believers on every point of doctrine. So when we talk about the, the gift of illumination that the Lord gives us in the Spirit, we don't want to be discouraged and uh, have our expectations out of line for what that entails. Thirdly, illumination does not mean that everything about God is knowable. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. There are still things that God does not reveal to us about who he is and aspects of his plan. Uh, we have to be comfortable with that. We, we have to rest with some unknowns. As we're reading scripture, there's going to be points where we're going to say, this is pointing to something that God doesn't reveal. And to the point where, okay, scripture goes this far and it doesn't reveal beyond that. That isn't the margin where we try to say, all right, Holy Spirit, reveal something to me outside of your word. No, because Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, we need to be confident that he has revealed thus far and beyond that, God is ha and has the right to maintain that as a mystery for us. And in many of those situations, it's, it's God calling us to trust him with that unknown. Trust him even on the things that we don't know. Fourthly, illumination does not render the need for human teachers unnecessary. There's been a variety of things popping up in church history, probably contemporary as well, where it's, I need no teacher, the Holy Spirit is my teacher, neglecting the fact that it's quite clear throughout Scripture, God gave teachers to the church for a reason. So, yes, ultimately, our teacher is God himself, the Holy Spirit, but he uses means as he does in many other ways, and one of those means is teachers. Elders are to be able to teach. That's one of the requirements for elders. Fifthly, illumination is not a substitute for dedicated personal Bible study. This is tremendously tempting, I think, personally for us to, to be struggling with a passage and being like, oh, I just don't know. I don't know what this means. I don't know what this means. And rather than looking at cross-references and looking at context and looking at, okay, who's the author? Who's he writing to? Our temptation is to be like, just close our Bibles and say, Lord, reveal this to me. Okay, well, the means by which we're going to learn that is through dedicated Bible study. The Spirit's work of illumination works alongside and through our own study of Scripture. So illumination is not a substitute for dedicated personal Bible study. It still takes work. We don't just get to get a shortcut to understanding everything that God has communicated to us. We have to study, we have to study hard, and we have to read God's word intentionally and seriously. And then, sixthly, illumination is not a one-time experience. It's not just, boom, I just felt so illumined last week. That was awesome. It's, it's not like this, this moment of illumination that just, aha, everything clicks together in a mountaintop experience. Illumination is the day-by-day work that the Holy Spirit does every time we open Scripture. Every time you as a believer study God's Word, the Holy Spirit is doing that work of illumination, which should be a great comfort to us. Any questions on illumination? 
points of fuzziness. Hopefully that illumined the topic. Ha ha. Sorry. Yes. I think I would kind of answer that similarly to when we're born again, justified process of sanctification. Kind of similarly, when we're born again, we're given new sight, able, able to perceive these things. We're, we're no longer in the 1 Corinthians 2.14 category of the natural person. So we're, we're no longer in that category. We are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there is going to be an ongoing process of cultivating and growing in those things such that we'll be, we should be more and more able to understand God's word rightly the, the more we've studied it. So it's like, on the one hand, at the one hand, yes, when we become born again, we have that illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit as we study his word. Um, but I don't, I think there's a, a progress in our understanding of God's word, certainly. I, do, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like, I'm becoming more illumined because Illumination is a ministry the Holy Spirit does in us, but it's always directed word, word, you could say, towards the word. Word, word, that doesn't really work at all. So um, directed towards the word as we're, as we're studying God's word. So it's not like we are becoming illumined. It's, the, it's as if the Holy Spirit's shining light on his scriptures so that we can better understand that. Does that, does that make sense? It's not like a, it's not an inward focused ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's Focus towards God's word. Russ. To that point, is it fair to say that our illumination is impacted by our sin? Yes, that's. Our quenching of or uh, grieving the Spirit? Yes, 100%. And I think that goes back to um, one of those points that MacArthur and Mayhew made um, on verse uh, number two. C2, illumination does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally because the human element can cause false doctrine. So, yes, sin and lingering aspects of pride and unbelief that will come against a, a truth of Scripture and say, I don't, I don't really want to believe that because that'll, that'll change the way I need to live. So that will um, still cause limitations in our understanding of Scripture. So, yeah, really good point on that. Anthony. I would, I would probably not use the language become more illuminated for the same reason that it's focusing on Scripture is what the Spirit's illuminating for us. Um, there's definitely an element in which we're to help each other in our study of Scripture. I think of the Ephesians, well, let's, 2 Timothy 2.2 um, kind of highlights this. It's not just necessarily a blanket statement for brothers in general, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's, there's always going to be this element of what I've studied from Scripture, 
I need to be passing on to others, and I also need to be hearing and learning from others. So you don't want to isolate yourself. The one that isolates himself seeks his own destruction. So um, definitely we should be studying Scripture in community, but there's also a contemporary wind that says you can only access the true meaning of Scripture if you listen to the right community which puts the authority of interpretation in that community's hands rather than Scripture itself is what's authoritative and has authoritative bearing. So we don't want to be practicing community interpretation principles. Like what, is, what does the community get from this, even if that community is just you and two other bros at your Bible study? Um, does that make sense a little bit? So like, yes, we want to include people in that process. Yes, we'll be sharpened as iron sharpens iron. But it's not that like, that person is doing some illuminating in my heart. It's still the Spirit working on all believers to better understand and rightly divide the word of truth. Good questions. Any other questions? Thoughts on illumination? Concerns on illumination? Yes? Going back to the second point, I don't even know. <clears throat> Good question. Uh, how do we I, I probably wouldn't word it that way, but basically, yes, because our authority isn't our own subjective sense. Our authority is God's word, and we go back to it and say, like, I don't think that's what that says, and here's why. And you, you're going back to the text again and again, and also realize we talk about theological triage, basically. We have, you have tier one issues that denying these things is denying the message of the gospel. To not believe this is to be in death still. I mean, like, denying the deity of Christ is an example of, it's like, well, the Spirit showed me that Jesus isn't really God. No, he didn't, because <laughs> God's Word makes very clear that that's not the case. But then you have, like, kind of the third-tier issues on something that's like, okay, we can, we can agree to disagree on that. Maybe it's going to mean we should probably worship in a different local church, because just the way that that's going to express itself is going to be, we can't all be doing the same thing. So, uh, I'm trying to think of a like a really arbitrary example that's not going to be. Uh, I mean, well, we talked about baptisms. Um, baptisms a couple weeks ago. And an example, like, we firmly believe at Calvary that infant baptism is not the model in Scripture. But we're not going to say, well, you were baptized an infant, so you're going to hell. Um, no, we're not going to say that. But when you go to plant a church with someone, and this Presbyterian brother strongly believes we need to baptize babies, and... I strongly believe we should baptize people based on a credible profession of faith. They've come to those conclusions based on Scripture. I think they're wrong, but they, they have come to conclusions. They have their texts. Then it's one of those third, maybe second-tier issues where you say, let's just not, let's not go try to plant a church together. I can affirm the work you're doing. You can affirm the work I'm doing, and we agree to disagree on those texts. So there's going to be categories of disagreement that remain, um, but in God's graciousness to us, those tier one issues are also those issues that are abundantly clear in Scripture. Like, you are going directly against the text of Scripture if you deny those things. So, um, does that kind of answer the question? Okay. Yes? How do we, kind of off that question, how do we reconcile with, like, Presbyterian, for the baptism example? I would, there's lots of them that are respectable, and like, you can tell they're men of God. Mm -hmm. and so, how do we kind of reconcile with 
the Holy Spirit's, and it's not, like, I'm trying not to say this in an offensive or an incorrect way, but they are having the conviction that you are wrong, and you are having the conviction that they are wrong. So is that where that human element comes in? But I guess I'm, I'm confused how the Holy Spirit is, but, and I know he's not. How one person is so convinced the Holy Spirit is telling them this way, and how just using this example, you are so convinced mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit is illuminating the word. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, but we come back again to I'm convinced this text says this. You're convinced this text says this. We do both believe that the Holy Spirit is illumining that for us, mm-hmm. but we're not just saying, "Well, I, I believe the Holy Spirit says this. I believe the Holy Spirit says this." We're like we're arguing on something objective. That's the, that's the starting point. It's like, are, are we looking at the same thing? Because if it's, well, I believe this based on, I saw Jesus under an apple tree and he told me this. It's like, okay, no. Because no. Um, we have something objective to go off of. It says that's not the case. So there, there definitely is that element of objectivity that has to be maintained. That if, if we're not coming at it um, with something that's unchanging, God's word, we're going to end up in a bind of, well, I think this, and I think this. So um, there's, a, there's capacity to agree to disagree on a specific text. But again, we're, we're realizing, yes, it's coming from the human element, because God is not a God of confusion. So it's not a matter of, well, the Holy Spirit told him this, and the Holy Spirit told him this, but we really need to be checking and checking and checking other texts and, and be, be conformable to what God's Word says, and not say, well, I think this verse says this. The Holy Spirit revealed it to me. I can ignore the rest of the verses that point away from that, which... I mean, really, that's how good theological conversation should go is, okay, you think this, but let's look at this text too. And, and what about this direction? So, yeah, it's, it's there. Go ahead. I would just add to that. I think the only thing that we can be 100% sure of in the infant baptism example is that we're not both right. Yes, that's a great point. As with a lot of these issues. Yes. And that, interestingly, that is an increasingly prevalent claim, basically, is that you can just kind of, bo- you can have both, and both are right, equally right. Well, no, they might both be equally wrong, <laughs> but they're not both equally right. <laughs> yeah. And again, in God's grace, those tier one issues are tremendously clear in Scripture. Those tier two issues are generally very clear. And there's tier three issues that, okay, I see why this brother who loves the Lord sees this different than me, and I still love him, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit continues to open his eyes to the other texts that point to these issues. So, yeah, good discussion. A lot more we could talk about on illumination of the Holy Spirit, but it is a a reality that should cause each of us individually to be grateful as we realize we can actually understand these things. Even the fact that we're able to have this conversation around God's Word to, to study God's word, to know it, to ask these sorts of questions is indicative of Spirit's work in our lives. All right, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We have a lot of texts and not a whole lot of time, but I want to start with Romans 12. Romans 12, 3 through 8. And just highlighting that spiritual gifts are given to be used. Spiritual gifts are given to be used. Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does act of mercies, acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Again, verse 6, let us use them. So these gifts that are given to the church that each believer receives are to be used. And I think it's helpful Many of you, maybe, I don't know, it was prevalent when I was in high school. It was kind of like these spiritual gift surveys. Like you need to like take this survey and you'll get your result. And like, this is what my spiritual gift is. And I'm going to do that. And no, I'm not going to do that because that's not my spiritual gift. Like, sorry, my spiritual gift is this. I think it's helpful as we think about, one, the gifts talked about throughout Scripture, this passage and other places. It's not necessarily an exhaustive list. Some people say there's this many. Some people say there's this many. It's not necessarily implied to be exhaustive. Another thing I've thought of is thinking about these different gifts almost more like a palette. Like you have, you have this color and you have this color and you have this color. And when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, we become believers, we're born again, we receive spiritual gifts, we're gifted by the Spirit. And it's really a matter of we each received a different blend of that spiritual gift palette. So it's not just like, nope, this is my gift. It's never going to change. This is what I do. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't lead. That's not my gift. Or, oh, no, I'm, not, I'm just not a merciful person. That's just not my gift. Like, obviously, these are things that we can all be, be desiring to cultivate. But there's a, there's a blendedness of someone that's just going to be like, wow, this person is really good at helping people in a way that just encourages me as I see them use what's so clearly something that supernaturally worked in them. Or just, man, things just get organized when this person helps lead other members in the body. And it's like, we just, I mean, went to a conference a couple weeks ago where um, there was about 500 pastors, ministry leaders, seminarians, men considering ministry. And this church is like, they're the regular attendance is like probably 600, 700. So it's a small church, a lot of pastors there. But they had 200 people volunteering for this, this week of making us food and coffee and keeping things clean and all of these, this army of people serving. But there were a handful within that that were using their gifts of organization and administration and so many things that were unseen in the midst of that. For those 200 people to all be using their gifts full force for a week and all the prep work, it's just an example of the way that there's a, there's a huge blending of giftedness and a huge variety. So, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, which is all of us, let us use them. Secondly, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, we've referenced this a few times, but there are certain gifts that were foundational. We talked about the book of Acts, how it's kind of like a, a birth record or a, a, a birth certificate and a baby journal for the church kind of documenting those early steps as the church was being built. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 uses the image of a building and a structure, and there's a foundational element that's different from the walls, that's different from the ceiling. 
especially if you think about a skyscraper, there's multiple levels, you can think about multiple generations. The foundation is constructed in a specific way. If you put the foundation on the top or try to put foundation all the way up the building, uh, it, it's just not how you, you build stuff. I know we have Joe. Joe knows how to build stuff. You're like construction, right? You don't put the foundation on the roof, right? Okay, just wanted to confirm. Thank you. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Apostles and prophets, those gifts were foundational. That's the foundation that the structure of the church was built on. So if you come across someone claiming to be an apostle today, it's not a biblical apostle because the apostles were foundational to the ministry of the church. We'll move to Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 to highlight that signs, wonders, and miracles were God's co-witnesses along with those who heard the message directly from God. A really cool passage that I enjoyed digging into quite a bit more this week. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to, the, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proves to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus incarnate, that is, declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard simultaneous to this attestation from those that heard, eyewitnesses of Jesus, apostles, well, God also, verse 4, well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there's a, a co-attestation. Along with the witness of those that heard from Jesus, God was working signs, wonders, and various miracles to basically co-verify what was being communicated to the believers that the author of Hebrews is writing to. So you heard, they heard it from the Lord, we heard it from those who heard it from him, and at the same time, God was working miracles. How can we reject this message is the, is the thrust of that. How can we reject this message? It was co-witnessed by God himself with these signs and wonders and miracles. So again, foundational for these these believers. This was something that happened along with those that heard it from the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which we are barely going to touch, but I hope these outlines in here will be a helpful tool as you individually study these passages, which I hope you will. I hope to be fielding questions over the weeks to come as many of you study these things for yourselves, many of you have already. 12 through 14, Paul's correcting some serious um, issues in the Corinthian church, one of which is the over-prioritization of the visible, flashy, big, boom, wow spiritual gifts, and a disregard for those gifts of love, especially, but any of those gifts that were less flashy. Like, yeah, I don't really want the gift of mercy. I want the gift of what that guy has, because, wow, people are listening to him. So, 
As we look at this passage, first we have to remember every believer receives spiritual giftedness for service by the Holy Spirit at salvation. Just looping back to something that Russ Smith said yesterday at men's breakfast, for all of you men that were able to be there, we were talking about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and how we were, when we're born again, we're created, or his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're created for works. And Russ says, we're born again to serve. We're born again to serve. And that's a great way of putting it. We're born again to serve. And that service is not merely in a general sense, but in a specific sense. The works were prepared for us beforehand, and the giftedness we receive is specific also. That's why the image of a body is so helpful that you don't have a a rib saying, I really would like to be a femur today. I think today I'd like to do that supporting role rather than that protective role. Or I think rather than being a artery, I think I would much rather be an ear. Um, It's not good for our bodies to think that way. Praise the Lord, they don't. In the same way, the the church, the body, shouldn't think that way. The the Corinthian church was a very gifted church, but they'd lost perspective. They'd gotten caught up in the gifts themselves, especially the visible ones, and had neglected to recall the purpose of the gifts. Ephesians 4 talks to that purpose also, 4.11 through 14. So Christ pours out his gifts on the church for the purpose of maturity for the body. The same was supposed to be true in Corinth. The purpose of these gifts is to bring the body to maturity. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. So with that, 1 Corinthians 12, we'll read verses 1 through 11 and uh, jump down after that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, and underline this verse in your, in your, in your Bible, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's purpose for the common good. We're not given spiritual giftedness for ourselves. We're born again to serve. We're gifted to serve. Verse 8, to the one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So, all these gifts given by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's a purpose, but those in Corinth had forgotten the purpose. Hence why they wanted to latch on to those highly visible ones, because that was the means by which they could be elevated within the church. Jumping to chapter 13, the rest of chapter 12, you should read it. It's talking about that body metaphor that we talked about. But right smack dab in the middle of talking about gifts. 12, talking about gifts. 14, talking about gifts is the wedding chapter. What's up with the wedding chapter in the middle of the, the gifts passage? 
Hint, hint, it's not a wedding chapter. It's about love and love being that superior gift that will last, the superiority of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see that gifts without love are useless. So all those other gifts, no matter how visible, no matter how awesome of a gift you might have, it's useless without love. And we're going to get into some indications that it's being used unlovingly later. It's useless without love. And then verses 4 through 7, we all know it, but we'll read it again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love's superior characteristics are part of what entail the superiority of love. But then the next part, not only are we looking at love's superior characteristics, but one of those characteristics is love's durability. Love's superior durability. It lasts. It doesn't fade. It doesn't pass away. Love lasts in contrast to what follows in these verses. Verse 8, interestingly, we often, when we're quoting this passage, you'll quote, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a, because I want to include the love never ends part in the, or love endures forever, love never ends. I want to include that in my, in my wedding reading, but I don't really want to start talking about as for prophecy, they'll pass away, as for tongues, they'll cease, as for knowledge, they'll pass away. But that is what that flows into, because that's what Paul is highlighting about love's superior durability. In contrast to select spiritual gifts, which Paul immediately names, love will never pass away. Unlike these gifts, which will pass away, love won't. So sign gifts, specifically identified as, uh, what do we got there? We got prophecies, we got tongues, and we got knowledge. That's the same knowledge referred to in chapter 12 that we looked at briefly earlier, that that knowledge, uh, apostolic knowledge, the, the revelation type knowledge, not just I know something, but, but revelation. These are, these are revelatory gifts. Sign gifts are identified as a feature of the infantile season of the church, part of the youth of the church, set to expire with the church's development into maturity. We talked about that maturity word. We'll, we'll loop back to it. Telios is the word, and Paul has a pattern throughout his writings where he'll pair childishness, infantness, with maturity. Child maturity, child maturity. That contrast is what we see here. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That word translated, for some of your Bibles, it'll be translated um, when the perfect comes. For some, it'll be when the complete comes. But that is the same word as maturity throughout Scripture, when the mature comes. So the partial nature of the prophetic gifts and knowledge, revelatory gifts in 9 through 10, are compared to the immaturity of childhood and infancy in verse 11. The child-mature contrast is a feature Paul uses in other places also. I think I have those in your handout. Um, we won't turn to all of them. I really encourage you to look up these pairings. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Infant, mature. 
Um, same with 1 Corinthians 2.6 through 1 Corinthians 3.1. We, we read that 2.6 passage, and then the, it's contrasted with, he couldn't address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And then same for Ephesians 4, 13 through 14, the purpose that the gifts were given to the Ephesians. He gave these gifts for the purpose that we all might attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this maturity in contrast to, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. It's also used in Hebrews, although that's uh, doubtful that it's Paul. So what will bring this era of revelatory gifts to an end is the adulthood or the maturity of the church. As the early church passes out of infancy, which we see throughout the book of Acts, that, that birth certificate baby journal of Acts, church passes out of adulthood in the early stages and passes out of the foundation-laying period of new revelation given to God's people. But Paul's kind of balancing it here because he, he knows Either that maturity will happen for the church and will pass out of this infancy, but maintaining throughout this whole process is an eager expectation that Christ will return, at which case instantly, instantly fully um, complete. So there's this, this balance of, okay, they will pass away, tongues will pass away, they'll, they'll cease, verse 8, these prophecies will pass away. But on the other hand, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That face to face seeing is a superior type of visibility. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So there's three nows, there's three current realities that will change at Christ's return. Verses 12a, there's limited sight, which will give way to clear visibility. This face to face type understanding cannot describe something less than the ultimate joy of being with our Savior. 12b, limited understanding will give way to full understanding, knowing even as we are fully known. God knows us perfectly one day we we will be uh, able to have proper understanding of him. And then there's another three, uh, there's another now. There's three things that remain now. Verse 13, so now, currently, presently, right now, faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. In contrast to those three things that started this timing section, three things that will pass away, three things that will cease, there's three things that are going to stick around. Faith, hope, and love. That's going to stay till the Lord returns. That's a, those are not changing. Those are not going anywhere. But the greatest of these is love, because love will be going on into eternity, whereas faith and hope, our faith will be made sight What we're hoping for will will come to pass as we're received by Christ into his kingdom. But love abides forever. Love is the greatest of these. Love never ends, verse 8 and verse 13. So in contrast to the three ceasing and passing gifts, these three gifts will abide. So in summary, the Corinthians' unloving misuse of the gifts prompted Paul's writing a concise response in verse uh, chapter 13 of Corinthians, in which he outlined the distinction between the temporary and passing away gifts versus the abiding and remaining gifts to emphasize the prominence of the latter. Most of all, one gift will outlast all of them, even into eternity, and that is love. But then in chapter 14, we won't read it all, he gives a brief 
summary of, okay, well, what, what do we do while these gifts are here? Because it says they will pass away, tongues will pass away, prophecy will cease. But what do we do while we still have these gifts in our midst? And Paul provides, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, regulation for how to conduct worship services in light of these gifts still present in Corinth and, and corrects a lot of their errors in the midst of it. Five kind of paragraphs, kind of sections just to highlight. Read it on your own. Um, I encourage definitely. First, love is the ultimate pursuit, verses 1 through 5. Prophecy was desirable because of how it lovingly built up others. That's what made prophecy useful is that it could build up others. Tongues was not guaranteed to do so unless there was a translator because without a translator, that was purely self-edifying. And the purpose of gifts is to build up others. So the superiority of love kind of rearranges the ranking of these gifts for the Corinthians. No longer is it just the, that's flashy, I want it. But is this going to be able to be used to build others up? Hence why tongues needed a translator. So love is the ultimate pursuit. Secondly, spiritual manifestations should be leveraged for building others up. Building up others. Paul establishes the fruitlessness of unintelligible speech for upbuilding the body of Christ. Thirdly, understanding is the foundation of truly God-focused praise and others-focused edification. We, we can't have true praise to God without understanding, and we can't have true others-focused edification without understanding. We don't want to detach our worship from our minds somehow and say, well, I'm, I'm worshiping apart from my mind. No, we, we do those things together. We worship with our mind and our spirit. Together as one, because they are one. Fourthly, mature thinking entails taking account of biblical passages and logically applying them. Paul says, you know about this passage. You, you should know this, the purpose of this. Take into account this, this passage in verses 20 through 25. He represents it, writes it right there for them and urges them basically to logically apply it. Think it out. In light of this reality that God revealed in the Old Testament, apply it as if it's, as if it's there, because it is there. And then fifthly, order and edification should be the hallmarks of every Christian gathering. Order and edification should be the hallmarks of every Christian gathering. As he talks about how things are to be orderly conducted, even with these highly visible gifts still in operation, because they will pass away, they will cease. But for this point in Corinthians, they, they haven't. In light of that, how do we conduct an orderly worship service that entails others are built up, others are edified? So we will not read these quotes, but I attach them for you to consider some various historical accounts. Did the sign gifts cease? Did the sign gifts cease? Those tongues, prophecy, miracle workers, and healers? The answer is yes. Um, read those various quotes from various uh, points in history. I think that will be helpful. But just wrapping up and in conclusion, as we conclude this series, spiritual gifts are important, and each was given to the church for a specific reason. But love is supremely important to the body of Christ. In seeking to apply our spiritual gifts in the body, in the body of Christ, we must be aiming at others' edification, not self-exaltation. We have to be looking towards, how can I edify others? As you think through, which we all need to think through, what is my spiritual gift? What are, what are, what are the giftednesses that God has given me? It can't be a matter of what makes me feel good. Like, oh, I just, I really feel happy when I'm serving in children's ministry. But 
whatever the gift might be, are we thinking of it towards self-exaltation or towards others' edification? That's the, the main moral of the story from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is how am I using the gifts God, given, God has given me to build up others? In the last couple of weeks, we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit's coming. We've talked about the Holy Spirit's coming in Acts 2 and various accounts in Acts. We've talked about baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it means to receive the Spirit, and some unusual occurrences in the book of Acts. Last week, we truly together marveled at the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit as it pertains to our sanctification and growth as believers. And today, we've discussed a lot, (laughs) a lot to consider, a lot to chew on, but I want to leave you with a few private reflection questions just to think through, think through on your own. First and foremost, and most important of all, have I received the Holy Spirit? Am I truly born again? living in the new life described in Romans 8? Or is the contrast in that passage we looked at in Galatians 5, are you operating more in that first category and realizing the fruit of the Spirit aren't budding up in my heart? These other fruits are. So have I received the Holy Spirit? Am I truly born again? Secondly, how am I serving in the body and using the spiritual gifts that God has given me? How am I using those gifts to build up others? And then lastly, what fruit of the Spirit do I need to be actively seeking to cultivate as I grow as a believer? Kind of what we started with. What's, what's an area where I need to grow? What's an area where I need to be more and more like Christ as the Holy Spirit produces that fruit in my life? So I'll close this in prayer, and we will wrap up this series next week. Lord willing, we'll have Justin McCoy with us. And by all means, come on up and ask any questions. We didn't have as much time for questions at the end as I'd hoped. But hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully this will be a resource you'll be able to turn to and understand truly how much we have to be thankful for for all that the Holy Spirit has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, even in reflecting last week, we know that we can come before you crying, Abba, Father, because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life that work of adoption, that glorious plan that you had from before the foundation of the earth to rescue and ransom a people enslaved to sin. People like us, people that don't deserve your grace, that don't deserve your goodness. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for the work you did on the cross and sending Christ to die for our sins, to die in our place, and to receive the infinite wrath that rightly should have been ours to consume for eternity and pouring that all on your son. Lord, we are not deserving of that grace. We're not deserving of newness of life. Much less are we deserving to be used for your glory. It's, it's a marvel that you would not only choose to save wretched sinners, but that in your plan you would use us for the encouragement of our brothers and sisters, that you'd use us for the furtherance of the gospel, that you'd use us for the building of the church. We don't understand that, Lord. I, don't, I still do not understand why you would use sinners like us. Please help us to be humbly yielded to your work in our lives, to be seeking to see the fruit of the Spirit more and more clearly seen as we seek to be more and more like Christ. And help us, Lord, to be seeking to serve, seeking to be edifying others, 
considering even this afternoon in the conversations we have in the car and the conversations we have over lunch, how can I do spiritual good to my brother? How can I do spiritual good to my sister? How can we be stirring one another up as we continue in this journey, as we long for the day when we are with you, when no longer are we living by faith, no longer are we clinging to hope, as sure as that hope is, but when we will truly be in your presence and that love will be what remains. We lift this day up to you. We lift this week up to you. We lift all this truth to you and ask that you transform us by it. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.